grounds for rehabilitation is not clear, does section 43, 40, section 3 and, and sub subsection F of the bill not to use information submitted by SERP? Payment mechanisms are raised for personal health care services. Um, is that, uh, will that not address the challenges once the bill is passed with information available? The concern that the bill does not stipulate any corrective action and or accountability or financial records The PFMA, uh, this question uh, and the answer I'm giving in a way, uh, as clear stipulations of when reports are submitted and corrective actions to by the Auditor General of South Africa, as stipulated in Section 50 of the bill. So the AG audits the finances of the NHI fund, according to what is written, and the AG has the power to, to dull consequences for those who transgress the rules. Uh, I have a, a, a concern with governance, and hence uh, the suggestion that the NHI fund must be externally audited, deputed, uh, independent company. Uh, I want to ask them whether they, the NHI fund will become a Schedule 3 entity, which are audited by the Auditor General, which outsources the audit to external companies. And very lastly, at the end of your, of your presentation, indicate that you support Universal Region NHI. Can you confirm this to us? Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, Ms. Machalamba, what, what time is this uh, discussion supposed to end? Uh, Mr. Lamba, I just want to time myself when I'm some. Uh, okay, we, we were supposed to start now <laughs> with a presentation that uh, Honorable Sukasha once has already prepared questions from Dula Omar. But uh, can we then maybe extend this uh, for another 10 minutes uh, with their responses? Some of them they will write back to us. Uh, I just want to add, okay, thank you very much. I just want to add a few. On the very first presentation of the South African speech language presentation, you said that the bill does not identify how clinical professions will get funded. We just wanted to check whether on the session on repeal or amendment, we talk about the establishment of contracting units for primary health care. Uh, that states that the units established in terms of subsection one must be directly contracted by the fund established by section nine of the National Health Insurance Act to ensure the provision of primary health care services that will include rehabilitative ambulatory home-based care and community care uh, of course, all of that. I, I was just reading it as is there on the bill. Maybe uh, if you could say you don't uh, probably think that is sufficient enough. Uh, it goes on to say that the fund must transfer funds to the contracting units for primary care guided by district health resource allocation and the formula used therein. So I wanted just to check if maybe you could, uh, uh, in, the, in reference to that, you would be able to comment. You also raised the question that NHI is a funding 
and not a strategy for access to healthcare. Uh, maybe you could then uh, assist uh, clarity on that one. Uh, on the uh, on the cloud will be integrated into the primary healthcare service delivery platform in line with the vision of making comprehensive, promotive, preventative, curative, and rehabilitative services accessible to all and will be coordinated through the contracting units for primary healthcare. Again, the same uh, principle above there, which is underpinning and emphasizing on that part. There's another part, the concern that uh, the assumptions that the service exists and just needs to be fully access, accessible is not addressed. Now, I quickly checked on the clause 15.3.B, uh, which states that the board shall advise the minister with regards to the development of comprehensive healthcare services to be funded by fund through the Benefits Advisory Committee, which then gives space in the event you would want to say, look, you can't leave this behind. And then it takes care in terms of what you are suggesting, all aspects, including rehabilitative experts. So I'm also, I was just checking if that clause is not sufficiently covering what you are raising. There's another point where you are saying the argument that the NHI might exacerbate inequality. Uh, and maybe you need to help to explain that. Uh, because one is understanding that this is to actually achieve universal access to quality healthcare services in the Republic right through, as a, is in accordance with Section 27 of the Constitution, uh, which is also embedded in the preamble of the Constitution, but also captured into the bill. Now, maybe you probably uh, give another uh, explanation. There was a concern also raised about health technology stating that there's a lack of clarity on how it will be paid for under NHI. Uh, now, I was just checking something there where NHI proposes to amend the Health Act 20, 2003, Section 21D in brackets 2, and replace it with this one that says, develop a national policy framework for the procurement and use of health technology. Now, it does not specify by name, but it just gives that overall. Uh, now, I then wanted to say, in, in relation to what Mam Shema was saying, we acknowledge the education that you have given us is quite comprehensive. Where I'm saying, so actually, I captured the say transport costs for one visit to, of a person with disability to a clinic or a hospital can go up to a thousand rand. And one can even imagine whether that person will decide to go for ARV collection or maybe say, I don't have a thousand rand, so I will miss that appointment. So this is a very important part. And we're linking that up with what a term I would like to maybe to give your understanding, what is your understanding of this term you call continuously use catastrophic health expenditure. I picked up somewhere I don't know who presented something that says that you doubt if the NHI bill will have a financial risk protection. Uh, I was wondering if maybe not one of the clauses, one of the principles there of this bill talks about social solidarity. I just picked, I failed to go to read 
where it is explained in details that, in fact, I would imagine the, the, the fundamentals of NHI is to actually reduce and remove that risk from that person sitting in Nongoma and that person sitting in Bali. So you reduce the risk. It makes health being a public good. Now, I wonder where I missed it, uh, where there was a mention that you doubt if uh, NHI bill has the capacity to remove this financial risk. Uh, I would read that maybe some of your comments uh, may be sent to us, but we just take only 10 minutes to reply all of you collectively. It was a very good team, uh, but unfortunately we cannot have all the time to give it to you. Minutes only, honorable member, uh, presenters, and then we are done. Honorable members will not have a second bite, sorry. Thank you, honorable chair. I will uh, pick up on a few of the questions raised by Mr. Leonard, if I've got the, the name correct. So um, we welcome the, the discussion about a pilot study with regards to the re models for rehabilitation. I think that what we're really saying is we're not um, advocating for a two-tier system of uh, payment. What we're saying is there is insufficient evidence-informed reimbursement models. Um, and therefore, if we're looking at products that are going to look at out-of-pocket billing, and if they are based on the fee-for-service, which is um, upfront, how would that work? And um, it, it is balanced against a need of whether payments to practitioners, to rehab uh, service providers is going to be um, on time, I think this is a very real concern. So it's really coming from that area. We're not advocating it other out, outside of that area. The other part that I wish to pick up on is that um, where you speak of um, Section 23 in the regulations, uh, again, uh, addressing a two-tier system, um, we're not advocating there. We're just, again, speaking about evidence-informed. And we welcome, again, the pilot nature of how that would be enable billing be a lot clearer and have a lot more detail in what the product will finally look like. Because as we're here, we're uh, embracing a large area of uh, quality care and health care, not just medical care. And we're talking about this, as my colleagues have mentioned, in the scope and paradigm of promoted preventative rehab and palliative. Um, the other area that I would like to um, say is on the PFMA that we we're speaking about, um, naturally, the comments that I've made uh, with regards to the audit general um, is we have, the bill has articulated and covered uh, in the audit financial statements how this risk could be adverted. But I think what we're trying to re-emphasize and reiterate is that the articulation may not be sufficient to the amount of action that's required. And I think we're, sp we're speaking in terms of the current and anecdotal evidence that has been provided by the Audit Auditor General herself, who is, has said that the, um, the quality and in the integrity of the reporting has been provided in most of the, um, the audited financial statements that she has oversight for and which the Public Audit Act um, 2019 will give her more powers to be able to have oversight for need to be implemented. And I think the area of articulation versus implementation that we're wishing to also raise here. In the area of, um, quickly, just in the area, so that you refers to correct um, uh, audit and, and 
for emphasizing this fundamental point. On the area of economy of scale and Gini coefficient, again, we are acknowledging there is the inequality. Um, so we're saying that we're advocating again for different tiers of billing. But what we're saying here is that where we will come with a certain level of indemnity of the financial risk. So my first slide articulated the social solidarity. We spoke about that and um, we are behind the universal uh, coverage. We're behind, so we are morally on the moral compass, uh, absolutely in the same breadth and scope of the bull enunciated. Concern is that when we're, it's the missing tell, whether that tell is a or whether it is actually uh, a law, I would beg to, to defer. The regulations are not laws. We might hear where we're speaking to details of what the Treasury. budget might be based or what will recording in so progress we do not run the risk that other countries have run where they have had to compromise and decide what was more priority in terms of the budgets they eventually had and i think that's where we're, we're wanting a, a bit more enunciation in terms of this financial risk and the indemnity in terms of this coming predominantly not completely but predominantly from taxpayers I think we would like to have um, to provide a more fuller answer in terms of the NHI financial risk on the section 10.2 mentioned, and we could send that response in a written uh, form in time uh, to say from my side, and I hand over to my next colleague who will take forward further questions uh, and the answers therefore. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anisha. I will go straight in the audiology specific questions. So there were two questions later to um, the first one was um, I, I absorbed in the, in the private sector and my answer is as audiologists we should be able to take full benefit of um, services and uh, cover the greater population of, of South Africa. And so looking at a training institution, we work with hospitals for training, going into communities, professionals are absorbed at the National Department of Health, as well as fully registered audiologists. We are talking National Department of Health. And this is where audiologists are mostly needed to cover all um, greater populations of this country. It would not be wise to say we recommend being fully absorbed in the private sector. We end up going into the private sector because of lack of posts in the public sector. And so if we could maximize existing uh, public health positions and we recommend for more posts to be opened for audiologists in the public sector. And that is for number one. Number two, the question was, do we think that um, what we were recommending in terms of um, procurement of equipment and devices is sufficient in the uh, it, it isn't but we are recommending that it's extended uh, in that we uh, want to sit in in the committee 
so that we review as well as advice on the uh, procurement of equipment and maintenance of existing equipment and devices for both audiometry testing or audiological assessments, as well as the assistive devices for our patients. And so is that, that we sit on the advisory committee so that assist in the of equipment and um, any to that. And um, those are the two comments that touch audiology that I'm going to address. And then Marika to address the third point. Thank you very much. Hello. Um... Thank you for the questions and mm. thank you also for mm. the support. Sorry. Two minutes for questions and front input. Um, around the scholar transport, um, so this is outside of health, obviously this is Department of Basic Education. Um, there is a particular concern. The DPOs with whom I work have been uh, working together with Equal Education and Section 27 to address these concerns as well, in that the policy, at least the KZN policy, um, decides that the provision of buses to special schools therefore meets the needs of learners with disabilities in scholar transport. And this is simply not right because we have a number of children we, and adults that we have managed to integrate into mainstream schools. Two of the girls that you have seen on the video, they are both scholars. They have both been hit by cars on their way to school in their wheelchairs because the roads are not safe. There is insufficient public walkways um, and there's no scholar transport. It is something that needs to be addressed urgently, um, along with many other things within the Department of Basic Education to make mainstream schools more accessible um, to children with disabilities. So I stand strong on that. Um, on the same issue of transport, uh, I have users that need to go for non-urgent planned appointments, neurology or orthopedic appointments at tertiary and central hospitals. Because they are in wheelchairs, cannot use the planned patient transport bus. Because they cannot use the planned patient transport bus, an ambulance must be booked to take them. Ambulance services are few and far between in rural areas. I have one person who, who came to the hospital to try to get the ambulance to go to his tertiary appointment. Five times the ambulance Each time he came to the hospital, because it was an evening transfer, he had to pay 450 rand. That's five times 450 rand that he wasted. He never got to his appointment. This is why I'm quite pat about making planned patient transport accessible to people with disabilities. It is simply yet another inefficiency within the system and it shifts the cost onto the user. Um, with regards to the 1,200 rand to get to hospital for a single round trip, this is from, so as you've guessed, I work in public sector. <laughs> this is from our, our furthest away area, but it is a similar cost reported, to, reported by my colleagues in the Eastern Cape as well. Um, yeah, this person 
is not going to come in. This is why I am so, uh, even with users do not live that far away, if their wheelchair doesn't collapse sufficiently, if they have sensory or emotional or behavioral issues, if they cannot control their bowel and bladder sufficiently, public taxis often just fly by them and refuse to take them. Therefore, they have to go and hire a private car again at 10 times the cost of a taxi. If you live even 100 meters off the general taxi route and you don't have anyone to help push you or together, you have to hire a this is really where I'm talking about the out-of-pocket expenditure in accessing care. It's not at the point of care. It's in accessing the care. And this is where I'm so strong on how the services are structured. Um, I, Dr. Dlomo, I appreciate your comments. And I agree that the bill is quite specific about rehab and disability services being provided at, at clinic and home level as well. I think where our concern comes is just having worked 20 years in the Department of Health, I'm quite anticipatory of low levels of inclusion in planning um, around how things will work, what will work, who must be involved, etc. And I think that's where we just wanted to share some experiences and our concerns. It's not that I don't believe NHI can do it. It's just that the more you include those of us who work at Coalface, the better we could make the system. Um, with regards to the financial risk protection, I think that that has been spoken. Um, with regards to NHI about um, perpetuating inequalities, that is really just around the contracting. There's no clarity on what contracts will be entered into, whether it's service contracts, whether it's in, uh, input-related contracts, whether it's outcomes-based contracting. All of those have different um, resource requirements um, and capacity requirements. Um, if we do contracting badly and we don't monitor it and there are insufficient objectives put in place, then we run the risk of just perpetuating the public sector inefficiencies that currently exist. And I think that was the point that I wanted to make. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, the team came in large numbers. It was largely mainly female. Yes. Chair, if I may, uh, I'm from the South African Society of Physiotherapy. I do recognize the concern that uh, my presentation alluded to both private and public sector. And there was a question that asked whether or not we support the NHI. And I just want to confirm, we do support NHI. What we are saying is that if there is, there will always be people who are able to afford more than, than others. And if they are able to afford private funding, then they should take the cost completely off from the NHI and carry their own health costs. We're not encouraging right. a, 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 a public sector, but we're just trying to reduce the load on the NHI if possible. Okay. And we do understand that it will take time to ensure that everyone gets appropriate healthcare and quality healthcare as such. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I will encourage the team to, of course, we have Department of Health here listening to us to also find time and space to continue to speak and share.
share your uh, sort of your presentations with them and uh, it would be good but for us as a portfolio committee we are uh, uh, happy you came in your presentation will uh, have this as, um, as actually supporting our process of refining uh, the presentation. Thank you very much. And we can now release you. Uh, honorable members, okay. I do want to uh, go to my commitment of a uh, five minutes break. Uh, we will not take any more of your comments uh, because of the time. Uh, we will take a five-minute break and hope that uh, the Dollar Omar Institute will be loading the presentation and will start at 11.33. At 11 Thank you. Recording stopped. Recording in progress.
welcome, welcome to the team leadership of Dalla Omar Institute. Uh, you have requested to make a presentation to the portfolio committee on your NHI uh, comments. We now give you this time. You have 45 minutes to make a presentation and uh, the honorable members would like to interact with your presentation thereafter. We have stolen a bit of your time. Uh, we can then allow you to start now. Introduce your team and present. Good morning, Chairperson uh, and members of the committee. My name is Motlatiko Mote. I'm a research and advocacy officer at the Dula Omar Institute. Chairperson, I just wanted to know the fact before I, I even begin uh, that my anxiety for 20 minutes uh, for my session to start as I was notified that it would start a little bit earlier. Uh, but so it, please forgive me if I make any mistakes along the way. I think as the presentation progresses, uh, I'll feel much better. But thank you very much for this opportunity to make an oral submission to the committee. I just, sorry, okay, um, oh, there we go. So we are the Duloma Institute, as I have already stated, we are based at the University of the Western Cape and we do work to realize the democratic values and human rights enshrined in South Africa's constitution. It's under the belief that our constitutional order must promote good governance, socioeconomic development, and the protection of rights of vulnerable and disadvantaged persons. I would like to note that the Dula Omar Institute is comprised of many units, including the Women, De Women and Democracy Initiative, um, sorry, Women and Democracy initiative, which I am a part of, the African criminal justice reform uh, team as well, uh, and the socio-economic rights project, amongst many others. Chair, I just wanted to provide a background on the written submission that we made in November of 2019. Our original submission focused on public participation and transparency, governance of the NHI board, including the composition and the roles of the different stakeholders in the appointment processes and the roles of provinces uh, and the DHMOs amongst others. We made a series of recommendations based on provisions that have been outlined in the National Health Insurance Bill of 2019. And our presentation today will largely be based on our expertise in governance matters. I just want to further note that the Dula Omar Institute are not in any case experts on public health care and we do not claim so. We are merely here to make a presentation on governance issues. So part of my presentation will deal with three key messages, which is basically that the NHI board plays a very critical role in the sense that it has impact on the public uh, in terms of providing or in terms of the provision of healthcare services. Uh, the NHI will have a large impact on our finances uh, as a country. And we see the NHI as an opportunity to redistribute healthcare services, particularly to rural areas. Uh, 
I note that the previous speaker made a very touching uh, contribution earlier on about raising the okay. So we would like to, and, and previously said, Parliament is constant public involvement, as we all know. And then thirdly, the legislature in the NHI then is currently envisaged. Okay, the main station will be on the board appointment process. Recording uh, in progress. achieve the full realization of rights recognized in the covenant by all appropriate means, including the adoption of legislative measures. Okay, I'd like to note that in terms of the current version of the NHI bill, um, there is reference made to universal health coverage, um, which aims to provide South Africans with access to decent health care that is of sufficient quality. Chair, I would like to note, and, and members of the committee, we support the current version of the NHI bill in principle. However, we have some concerns. Part of our main concern is that the NHI bill is partly exclusionary in the sense that it excludes non-South Africans. Chair, I will not go into a lot of detail around that, but I just thought that we would note that, and I know that other civil society organizations who will be invited or have been invited to make presentations will provide some outline of the concerns relating to exclusionary parts of the bill. I would like to start off by speaking around Parliament and its democratic role, uh, particularly around its constitutional and legislative obligations. In terms of Section 59.1 of the Constitution, the National Assembly in Parliament must facilitate public involvement in legislative and other processes of the Assembly and its committees. And also, Chair, uh, there is, I think, a very popular case that we are all aware of, Doctors for Life International versus Speak of the National Assembly and others, that provides an overview of what constitutes reasonable public participation in legislative processes. I want to note, Chair, that COVID-19 has presented an extra layer of challenges regarding public accessibility to the legislatures and to healthcare. I just want to note the fact that what I have previously said are obviously things that the committee is very much aware of. So we're just noting that as part of our presentation. On my first point around governance in the NHI, we would like to speak about the board appointment process. So in terms of what is currently found in uh, the NHI bill, the minister has a lot of centralized power. And essentially, the bill provides autonomous power to the Minister of Health to both appoint and dismiss board members and the chairperson to the NHI board. Our recommendation is that we diffuse this role of the minister and involve other stakeholders. What this would entail is that it would ensure that the minister or any or would ensure that there is no undue political interference that we have previously noted in SOE appointments, which are similar to the board that would be created by, by the NHI. 
some of the lessons that we have learned in SOE processes have been dealt with extensively by courts, for example, in the SABC case where a previous minister had interfered in the work of the board. What we have noted and strongly note in this presentation as well is that there's a possible danger that the NHI board may be faced with similar problems if we do not make the necessary changes to the bill. I wish to note that the Organization for Economic Operation and Development, referred to as the OECD, provides clear guidelines and principles which should be followed by organizations or corporations in terms of good corporate governance. Good corporate governance principles strongly suggest that power must not lie with one individual, in this instance, the Minister of Health, and that rather there should be a decentralization of power and diffusing of power. Chair, we wish to note that we need to consider other mechanisms for transparency and public involvement, some of which I am here to discuss in this presentation. <clears throat> Chair, part of our recommendations uh, are that there must be more debates held in Parliament and in this process on whether the Minister or President should make the final appointment of persons to the NHI board. Uh, Chair, we wish to reiter reiterate that other high-level processes that have a significant public impact, um, for example, the Municipal Demarcation Board, the Public Protection, the JSC, um, have a role for the president instead of the minister in terms of making final appointments. In our view, the president should be responsible for the final appointment of persons to the NHI board. Chair, just to note that we had actually provided in our original written submission uh, some opportunity for the committee to engage on some alternative recommendations that we had made regarding this. In this presentation, we'd like to note that this is our final recommendation. And then, Chair, I'd like to speak to the role of the appointment structures and the minister currently in, in the NHI role. Currently, there is a limited role for the advisory panel in the bill. Uh, we are not in agreement with the establishment of an ad hoc advisory panel in its current form. As I noted previously, the minister has a lot of centralized power, which we are very much against. Our recommendation is that Parliament relooks the NHI bill and that instead of having an ad hoc advisory panel, that an appointment structure with extended powers, which would limit the minister's role, should be established instead. Um, Chair, just to note that these recommendations relate to Section 14 and Section 13 of uh, the NHI bill in which the minister would appoint both the board and the chairperson. So I'm just noting that in terms of making references. In terms of the composition of, 
who would be on this uh, appointment committee. We believe that anybody who occupies any position on any of the committees or any of uh, the boards on the NHI bill must be someone who is impartial. They must have knowledge on particular matters, for example, healthcare, and they must have the necessary skills and competence um, that are relevant to the board. Sorry, Chair, I'm just experiencing some technical difficulties. There we go. In terms of the responsibilities, we believe that the appointment, <clears throat> appointing structure, I mean to say, should be in charge of the call for nominations, shortlisting interviews, recommendations to the president and or the minister. They must also be in charge of ensuring transparency in processes and ensuring that there's meaningful public involvement in any process relating to the NHI bill. I would also like to note that my colleagues, DeFissa and Waterhouse, have rightfully argued in their paper, SOE Board and Democracy, that in order for us to increase transparency and accountability, uh, any call for Any call for nominations and appointments should include reasonable opportunities for the public to provide inputs, both in the nomination and appointment processes. Chair, in terms of the nominations and shortlist, we believe that the appointment structure, which I have made reference to, should re be responsible for the call for nominations. Some of our non-negotiables are that the public must have full access to the call for nominations and must be provided with adequate timeframes. Chair, I cannot tell you what the adequate timeframes are, but I believe that we all know, as, as we have previously seen in other appointment processes, that it is not conducive to provide information at a last minute to members of the public and expect them to engage. And then in terms of this appointing structure, shortlisting and interviews, both shortlisting of the long list and the shortlist must be made public. And the reasons must be provided as to why some people were appointed and others were not. The appointment structure that we are recommending would ideally make recommendations to the minister and or the president and the president and or the minister would make the final appointment and provide reasons. As I've previously stipulated, we would prefer that the, the president, I mean to say, makes the final recommendation. One of the key things that we also wish to reiterate is the fact that in terms of board dissolution, uh, section 139A, I, uh, provides the minister with the power to dissolve the board of the fund on good cause shown. In our opinion, this is very vague and it is important that a list of possible reasons for dissolution should be provided in the bill. Again, Chairperson, the OECD and other good governance uh, mechanisms that are available note that um, reasons should be provided both for dissolution and, and uh, for nominations of persons. 
Furthermore, Chair, we wish to reiterate that the bill must require that the information relating to the reasons for dissolving the board should be made available for public record and scrutiny to ensure public transparency and accountability. The bill must include the fact that the minister may only dissolve a board after presenting arguments for this to parliament. Again, Chair, we very much wish to note quite strongly that the minister should not have as many autonomous powers as is currently provided for in the NHI bill. Okay, before I move on to the next uh, section, I wish to also note some points that I, I, I did not make earlier. Chair, one of the things that we, re that we really think are quite important uh, in terms of board appointments and appointments of any other persons to the NHI board is transparency. We believe that there must be transparency in all processes of the bill uh, throughout. So here I would like to note additional problem areas that we have identified in the NHI bill. I wish to note that we are not in any way going to focus on the role of provinces and the DHMOs, but rather that I will make a very brief overview of some of the concerns that we have identified. The large parts or the biggest part of our presentation is around governance. So in terms of the roles of provinces currently provided in the NHI bill, we have some key concerns. So in terms of competency, the role of provinces or provinces play a concurrent role in providing healthcare services along with national government in terms of the constitution. As it currently stands in the bill, there's very limited clarity on the role of provinces and other than their delegation as management agents of the NHI. <clears throat> Excuse me. We wish to note that uh, provinces, as we all know, receive an equitable share, which would then be transferred to the NHI fund as per the bill as a form of income. The plan for the role of provinces needs to be properly articulated. Chair, we have seen quite strongly with the pandemic how challenging providing healthcare services at provincial level can be, can be. So we are concerned with decisions and how these would impact on the role of a provincial legislature in providing oversight over the funds. We wish to note that we cannot take away the critical role of the provinces in implementing the NHI and strongly encourage Parliament to reconsider along with other civil society organizations or any other member of the public that is interested in the NHI bill around fully defining what the role of provinces would be in the bill. The second part would be around the district health management offices or the DHMOs. Currently in our, in our opinion, there is confusion on the role of DHMOs similar to that of the role of provinces that I have previously outlined. The bill in its current form does not account for the important role that is undertaken at a district level in the provision of healthcare services. And part of our areas of concern are that clarity is needed 
And this particular section of the bill, along with that of the provinces, must be strengthened accordingly with input from members of the public and other civil society organizations, such as the RHAP, Section 27, and TAC. Lastly, Chair, we wish to note that in terms of the advisory committees that have been outlined throughout the <clears throat> NHI bill, we wish to note that the role of the public is important in all advisory committees as stipulated in the bill. And the public would not just be civil society organizations such as ourselves, but it would also include members of the public. Ideally, advisory committees should include CSOs and members of the public as health system users. We strongly note that any advisory committee should not mainly constitute government and the private sector. Part of my final remarks in closing here are to note that firstly, we recommend that parliament plays a stronger role on the NHI than is currently envisaged. We note that parliament has a duty and an active role to play. Some of the lessons learned in SOEs in particular have taught us that corruption, state capture are rife when mechanisms are not in place at all stages of the process. We note that clarity must be provided on outstanding matters that we have outlined, i.e. the DHMOs and the role of provinces. Chair, I did not say this at the beginning of my presentation, but I just wanted to note that the NHI bill will provide so many responsibilities and will be dealing with large amounts of public money. Chair, I wish to note that we need to ensure that throughout the whole process of incorporating the NHI bill, that we must be very careful of making mistakes that we have previously seen play out in South Africa and obviously uh, outside of South Africa, Chair. I wish to note that it would not be conducive for us as a country at all to undergo processes similar to the Zonda Commission. And I wish to note that what is ideally needed in this NHI bill is fixing parts around the governance issues so that we do not have to deal with these matters 10, 20 years from now, similar to what we're dealing with and seeing in terms of corruption and state capture uh, at the Zonda Commission. I wish to note that transparency is an important part of the process. And I would encourage and, and, and in fact would state that we as civil society organizations are very much supportive of the goal of achieving universal health care as uh, defined in terms of Article 12 of the UN Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. So I wanted to also lastly thank the committee for providing us with this opportunity to make this presentation. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, ma'am. I have not seen the hands uh, in our chat group. May I take the hands of the honorable members who would like to engage with the presentation here now? Uh, just shout your name, I'll write down to you now. Jacob's chairperson. 
Sokata Jacobs, your number one. Sokata Jefferson. Sokata. Sokata number two. Any? Naribrumunyai Jefferson. Okay, Munai number three. Any other hand? Honorable Wilson Chair. Wilson Chair. Honorable Wilson, you are number four. Thank you, Chair. Then I'll come in after you, Honorable Wilson. In that order, Honorable Dr. Jacobs, followed by Honorable Sukacha, Honorable Munai, Honorable Wilson, number four, and then I'll be number five. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you for the presentation. Now, you indicated that there is limited clarity in the bill on the role of the provinces other than the delegation as management. The responsibilities of the provinces are not only related to those delegated, as uh, most of us are aware, they also have all powers obtained within uh, uh, and listed in the National Health Act. Uh, for example, uh, to provide specialized hospital services, which would include infectious diseases and mental health, to provide port health services, to coordinate health and medical services during provincial disasters, to provide and coordinate emergency medical services and forensic pathology, and as well as forensic clinical medicine and related services, including the provision of medical legal mortuaries, and medical legal services. And then they also provide and maintain equipment, vehicles, healthcare uh, at establishments in the public sector. So the question I'd like to ask is which constitutional powers of provinces were removed according to what we heard being presented and, and we don't really see that any powers had been taken from the provinces. Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Uh, let me also thank uh, the report from uh, Ms. Mutatsi Komote. I hope I'm, uh, I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Um, my, my, my question, Chair, is, uh, is just a point of clarity. Uh, uh, Ms. Mutatsi has mentioned that uh, she has raised uh, about the role of district in the provision of health services. Section 36 of the National Health Insurance Bill states that, I quote, a district health management office established as a national government competent in terms of Section 31A of the National Health Act must manage, facilitate, support, and coordinate the provision of primary health care services for personal health care services and non-personal health services at district level in compliance with 10 national policy guidelines and relevant law, close quote. Do you think, Ms. Mutlatsi, that uh, uh, section, uh, do you think this section still does not address your concern? Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. Uh, the, my, my, my question will be, for instance, um, in your presentation, uh, 
uh, your support for the your support for the uh, public funded single payer system is well articulated in relation to the return on investment. But also, I want to ask the other question, Honourable Chair, that says uh, in the in the presentation of the presenter, they've indicated that they would want to recommend that the a recommendation on the appointment of the board be done by the president. Uh, uh, and I'm sure they, um, they are aware that the, uh, the president is not a member uh, uh, of parliament. And within our democratic institution or democracy such as ours, uh, the minister has been appointed with executive powers. Do they want us to change the constitution? Uh, not minister to have to exercise those executive power uh, as 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 uh, the the argument if they could clarify um thank you and thank you very much to the institute for your presentation um i think there's lots there that needs to be considered I think I'm principally covered by some of the, the previous questions. Just a question though, in terms of everybody in this country has the freedom of choice. They're entitled to make choices about where they want to go, who they want to see, and also include the medical profession. Um, we, we've got a referral system coming and, you know, I'm not, and I'm going to use myself as an example and I, I hope it's not too, a, too much of a poor one. I've been going to my doctor for 20 years. Um, so has my entire family. He has our entire um, medical history from A to Z from when the children were little and they're all now grown up and, and predominantly self-employed. They still go to the same doctor. Does this NHI at any point impact on the freedom of choice for people to go where they need to go and obtain the services that they need to go with the professional that they are comfortable with. Um, you, you've, you've kind of said that, that the legalities of this, this bill are, are okay, um, but I want to address specifically, number one, freedom of choice and, and people's right to, to go where they need to go, where they're comfortable going. Um, and secondly, the fact that this does, we already sit with a disaster in terms of the health department. And we, we saw this in, in earlier presentations today, where people do not have access to health. They just simply do not have access to quality health or any health services whatsoever. And how you believe legally this will impact the bill. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, honorable members. I, I do have just one to check with uh, Ms. Komote. Uh, you, you have raised the role of district health in the provision of health services. Now, when you check on section 36 of the NHI bill, it, it states there's in the code, a district health management office established as a national government component in terms of section 31A of the National Health Act must manage, must facilitate, must support and coordinate the provision of primary health care services for personal health care services and non-personal health care services at the district level in compliance with the 
10 national policy guidelines in the relevant law. You probably don't think that maybe there is more on that part. Uh, uh, it is also going to touch what Honorable Dr. Jacob asked. I may not repeat that uh, because uh, uh, sometimes uh, we do find that uh, other uh, presenters of people on the bill that the roles of these and the roles of districts as actually providers of healthcare services is a bit diminished. Uh, can we then get your comments on these uh, clarity-seeking questions? Thank you. Thank you for those uh, questions, members of the, the committee and, and the chairperson. I just wanted to deal with, firstly, the questions around the provinces and the districts. I just wish to note that I did uh, say in my presentation earlier that that is not our main focus of our presentation. So I would ideally not like to, to answer some of those questions except to say that what we are trying to largely say around the provinces and the DHMOs and the districts is that there is some confusion in terms of what is found in section 36 and other sections relating to the provinces and DHMOs, which I think other civil society organizations whose main focus was around this will, will come and note before the committee. So I think that deals with uh, the questions by Honorable Sokacha um, and pardon me, I, I forgot who the first um, presenter was and an Honorable, I wanted to deal with a question by Honorable Munyai. In terms of what we are saying as the Dula Omar Institute, we're not in any way saying that there needs to be a constitutional change or challenge to the powers provided to the minister. What we are saying, uh, which I, I did try and outline in my presentation, is around the fact that uh, we should ideally provide uh, a situation where the president makes a final recommendation similar to processes such as the JSC and the public protector. So I'm not in any way saying that the president must come and conduct interviews and be in charge of shortlisting. I think that's where I wanted to, to perhaps provide a bit more clarity. What we are saying is that we would have different stakeholders who would be part of an appointment structure, who would come together to be in charge of both the nominations, the shortlisting, and making a recommendation, which would then be sent to the president to make a final recommendation, um, sorry, which would then be sent to the president as a final recommendation and the president would make that final decision. As I've previously stated, similar to processes such as the JSC and the public protector process. And then in terms of Honorable Wilson, sure, I think that question uh, is a very difficult one, but I wanted to note the fact that I'd like to believe that myself and you come from a place of privilege in the sense that we can choose which doctors we are able to go to. My cousins who live in rural Limpopo who have to make use of 
the public health care system cannot decide which doctor they get to see on which day. And I want to note the fact that the previous speaker spoke about the fact that the taxis uh, in rural areas are a big problem. And noting the fact that we are able to drive to a doctor, we are able to maybe even walk to a doctor, but the majority of South Africans whom this NHI bill will most certainly provide healthcare services. In terms of freedom of choice, the freedom of choice is unfortunately quite limited for the majority of South Africans who are in most instances poor or, or um, not from uh, middle income um, households. Uh, and thank you, uh, Honorable Wilson. Yes, uh, I do note that you are from Limpopo as well. And in terms of the impact and the legality, I, I cannot go into that. But what I wanted to really reiterate in terms of our presentation was the fact that because the NHI bill will have so many consequences for the large majority of South Africans, we have to be very careful and intentional about the kind of powers that we provide to the different stakeholders that will be found sorry, that will be um, mentioned and who will be part of implementing the NHI. So we have to ensure that anything that relates to the governance issues that we have identified and some of the other health care issues that I think other colleagues from different civil society organizations will continue to identify are addressed. Whilst we welcome the NHI bill, we think that we cannot move with the NHI bill as is until we fix some of the issues that I have identified in my presentation, including and not limited to the role of provinces and DHMOs. I'm not in any way stating the fact that uh, the, 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 the bill does not speak about the role of provinces and DHMOs, but what I am noting is that there needs to be more clarity which we are welcome to provide input on, and I think other civil society organizations and other members of the public will as well. Thank you. Okay. Okay, thank you. We are the only one who is coming in from the Tula Omar. Yes, Chairperson, I'm the only one. All right. Uh, I hope we didn't threaten you. You were saying uh, we anxiety by keeping you waiting. Uh, but thank you for your presentation. Thank and you. Uh, we welcome, we are actually as a committee going to uh, have it as part of our processing going forward. Honorable members, if there are no other takers, we take a 10 minutes break. Okay. Chair, I just have two short follow-up questions, if you would permit. A follow-up from Honorable Jacobs. Okay. Uh, Chairperson, uh, just two short, very questions. I noted the word must uh, being used where uh, the presenter was talking about the problems or concerns uh, which are highlighted. Uh, the changes must be made uh, and uh, would... Uh, does it mean that they would therefore challenge the bill should those changes not be included uh, and then number two 
is uh, the processes of public participation has, have been ongoing for quite a while, where we started with a white paper, the draft, first draft of the bill, and now this bill in consultation uh, with uh, the public, uh, those processes running at the moment, and then it also going to the NCOP for concurrence. Uh, would she expect us to do anything more than that? Thank you, Chair. Honorable Honorable Nye would like to also make a follow-up question. So when you, when the presenter Komote, if I'm right, Komote or something, uh, want to, uh, that the the process should be that of the ju judiciary, the, which is legislated, the judiciary is legislated. Does she suggest that we should change the constitution through the NHI bill? Because that's how the judiciary is, you know, is, you know, is, 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 is regulated in terms of separation of powers. And, 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 and those, um, uh, you know, section uh, chapter nine institutions are also independent and, and they are regulated within the constitution. Does she suggest that we should change the, the constitution? And I'm sure she's aware that to change the constitution, you need, um, a two-third majority in parliament. Is that what she recommend? Thank you. Uh, uh, to add on this, a, a process that you are involved in. Uh, so just to complement what I was saying, if you were to elevate it to that level, then you have to do a different thing. Like we can't appoint a judge sitting where I'm seated now. You have to give it to that level of uh, uh, that discussion of a, a president. So elevating it to that level also will need that type of a, a, a change. Is that your suggestion, Ms. Komote? Chair, uh, thank you very much. I think I will address the last two points first, and then I will deal with Honorable Jacobs's comments. Chair, we're not in any way saying that we need to change the constitution. What we are saying is we have seen that processes similar to that, uh, appointment processes similar to those undertaken by the public protector, uh, by parliament and the public protector processes, I mean, and uh, by the JSC, where you have different role players who are coming together to make appointments um, fare very well in terms of ensuring that there is no undue political interference or very little uh, political interference in the appointment processes. What we have seen in, for example, SOEs is when you have a minister who has unlimited powers, what then happens is they can hire and fire whomever they choose on the board as they please without necessarily having to account to anyone, uh, which is quite dangerous in my opinion. And even the OECD guidelines do state that ideally there should be other role players who are involved beyond just having the minister play uh, an autonomous, autonomous sorry, role. So I'd like to clarify that. In terms of whether we would um, 
take this up and challenge it in terms of the constitution. I cannot speak for the organization, but I can definitely speak, speak for many, I think, other, um, other civil society organizations and note the fact that if the bill in any way is unconstitutional or um, limits people's rights as outlined in the constitution, then that may possibly open parliament up to a constitutional challenge uh, that we have seen in the past. So I cannot, again, because we haven't made a decision as an organization speak, but I can generally speak in my own individual capacity that parliament then stands to open itself up for many challenges. And then uh, in terms of public participation, yes, public participation has been ongoing uh, in the bill and I'm not in any way uh, not noting the fact that this particular portfolio committee has worked very hard in trying to ensure that members, different members of the public in different areas are engaged and involved in this process. So I'd like to commend the, the portfolio committee on health in terms of the good work that you have done around this. However, it does not mean that we cannot continue to have more engagements around uh, the NHI bill. I think that there is no need for us to rush a process such as this. I'm not in any way saying that we're rushing it, but I'm just noting the fact that if there are some issues that are of concern that myself uh, as a member of the Dalla Omar Institute and other persons and other civil society organizations such as, again, Section 27, TAC, have noted around the bill that these should ideally be considered as part of the public participation, transparency and accountability. Thank you. Okay, we will not take it longer than that. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Komote. Uh, you are now re released. You can always think behind if you want to hear other presenters. Honorable members, we'll just have anymore. five minutes break as the uh, the next presenter is loading their presentation is the medical and there's a very tongue-twisting term but <laughs> they are doing a very important work so can they be loading their presentation while we take a five minutes break thank you very much
Okay, honorable members, uh, can we then start with the presentation from the South African audition tongue twist? You can pronounce this name if you have not uh, taken something very strong. South African Orthotic and Prosthetic Association. The floor is yours, leaders. You are presenting to the portfolio committee. Your presentation is on NHI. You have 40 minutes or 45 minutes to present, and the portfolio committee would like to presentation thereafter. Your 45 minutes starts. Uh, good afternoon, Chair, honorable members, and colleagues. Um, we would like to, to present to you today where we aim to provide further information with regards to our profession, what role we fulfill therein. We will be highlighting current challenges and how this ties into the current NHI proposal, as well as the impacts that this will have on decisions. And I've been aided by a panel of esteemed colleagues that are representative of the entire orthotic and prosthetic industry in South Africa. Education, we have Maria Deist and Luke Luzana. The public sector today is represented by Jan Hendrik Swigers. And finally, we have the represented by myself, Ryan Knight, Singh, and Heather McRae, our Chief Operating Officer. Our presentation today will be divided into four main sections, namely an overview of our industry, um, which will be presented by Heather McRae. From the education side, um, we again show our efforts to meet the orphan prosthetic requirement. Their current successes, shortfalls, and challenges will be presented by Jan Hendrik Swigers. And then finally, the private sector submission will be presented by myself. With that, I'd like to welcome our first speaker today and Saopa's current Chief Operating Officer, Heather McCrane. Thank you, Heather. Thank you very much, Bradley. Good afternoon. My name is Heather McCrae, and I am the current Chief Operating Officer for Saopa, the South African Authentic Association. As such, with providing an introduction today of who we as an association, more importantly, who we are as a profession, the range of services we provide, and where we fit into healthcare in general. So, the South African Orthotic and Prosthetic Purpose is to promote the interests of and to assist and encourage the development of the profession of orthotics and prosthetics in South Africa and internationally. We represent the interests of our members in the ONP environment and participate in relevant forums and engage with stakeholders on matters relevant to our profession, such as our presence here today. It is very important to note that orthotics and prosthetics are the rules and regulations of the Health Professions Council of South Africa and not the allied HPCSA. As such, we are thus considered baseline practitioners and are entitled to assess and prescribe appropriate treatment and service. 
when working as part of the rehabilitation team, there's obviously a certain amount of inter-referral amongst the various disciplines. And as such, there are specific referral pathways. However, as first-line practitioners, we may prescribe directly, and this can prevent unnecessary costs and delays in treatment. For this reason, there needs to be some flexibility in the referral pathway in some cases. Whilst the orthotic and prosthetic professional is fairly small, our scope of service and reach across medical and the greater population is vast. We are often thought of in terms of offering services and solutions to the disabled community only, in which we play a vital and indispensable role. But one also needs to be cognizant of the acute ends and treatments such as muscular overuse injuries, problems, fractures, sport injuries, lymphedema care, to name a few. So we do not only operate as part of the rehabilitation team, but we also support other services such as pre and post-op treatments, prevention or delay of surgeries, prophylactic interventions, etc. So to put this into orthotic and prosthetic treatment forms an integral part of primary health care and beyond. So I would like to give you some clarity to what types of services we as orthotist properties provide. There's a misconception that we take an item off the shelf to treat a patient to meet their specific needs. Whilst we do work with off-the-shelf products, these in most cases require some form of adjustment or modification to ensure correct fit and functionality and prevent additional problems such as skin breakdown and non-compliance. Having said this, most of our authentic and prosthetic treatment, especially to the disabled community, require custom-made devices. Custom-made devices require in-depth assessments and evaluation to see that the device will address the specific requirements of the individual. Measurements are taken. This is followed by a lengthy device that requires specialized equipment facilities, which are established at great cost to the private practitioner or by the Department of Health. Additionally, there are a large variety of components and materials involved in such manufacture, and many of these items need to be kept in stock and purchased in advance. I think it is also important to point out at this stage that along with supportive devices to prevent further deformity and or aid healing and corrective devices to correct deformities and in many cases avoid costly surgery, there's also the group of cosmetic devices which do not assist with mobile function but are of vital importance to the dignity of certain patients. Having a cosmetic replacement for a lost or missing body part forms part of the right to be integrated and accepted back into society without discrimination. If utilized correctly and appropriately, orthotic and prosthetic intervention has been proven to reduce costs in all phases of rehabilitation from acute to fully rehabilitated. Some examples of this would be the prevention of surgeries, reduced rehabilitation timeframes, and earlier integration back into society as functional contributors, as shown in studies documented in the Journal of Neuroengineering and Rehabilitation in 2018 and the South African Journal of Orthopedics in 2010. I would like to end off with a reference to a report by the NHS in 2015, which states that for every British pound spent on improving orthotic provision, the NHS could save four pounds. Thank you very much. And I would now like to hand over to Mariette Deist, who will discuss the education aspect. Good morning, um, Chairperson, Honourable Members from the NHI and colleagues. My role today is to give you a bit of a background 
of the education in our country regarding medical orthotics and prosthetics. The Pretoria Technicon started a three-year national diploma course in the 1980s. After the three years, the student had to do a one-year internship. This was followed with a registration as an independent practitioner with the HPCSA. This course is phasing out now and TUT have taken their last intake in 2018. Two other universities and TUT opened a four-year program with a Bachelor's of Health Science degree. These four years have to include all practical aspects of the profession as they are allowed to register as independent practitioners after graduation. Because the internship year is actually falling away, we would have preferred to have a community service here in our profession, but there are no community service for us at this stage. Just to note that the universities will produce 100 students per year extra from now onwards. Another important group of our profession is the orthopedic footwear technicians and assistants. We, um, they are called mid-level workers, um, uh, as we all know them. To become an assistant, you have to do an in-service training at an MOP center for two years. For two years. Thereafter, you can register as an OSA with the HBCSA. The category of people are not allowed to work with patients, but are very valuable within the lab, um, helping with the manufacturing of orthotic and prosthetic devices. Then you can proceed to train for another year at any center, and within that year, the person is taught how to work with patients that are in need of surgical boots and footwear. After this one-year training, they have the right to, um, to write a, a HPCSA board exam, where after they will be registered as OFTs and are able to work with patients under supervision. Both these categories have to work under supervision of an MOP, meaning that the MOP still takes the responsibility of the patient. The problem in this area is that public sector only appoints um, people that are registered with the HBCSA and therefore trainers are not appointed. So it's a catch-22 situation for this group as they can only be registered after the in-service training, but they can't be appointed because um, public service don't appoint people that's not um, HBCSA registered. In certain provinces, they have appointed um, trainers in other positions where they um, actually got this right. All right. So in this slide, you will see the numbers of the registered MOPs, OFTs, and assistants in the country. You will see that in Gauteng, we have the most MOPs, 240. The assistants and OFTs are not a lot, making the burden on the MOPs higher with workload, which I will explain in the next few slides. The population um, stats on this slide is from 2019. I apologize for this, but it's just to give you a background and a picture of what the predicament in our profession is. So these are the hospitals that um, service the provinces in um, in the public sector. When we're looking now at the population in each province, you will agree that 240 MOPs, which is the red one on top, um, for a population of 15 million could be enough. However, if we look at those appointed in the public sector, which is the orange ones on the left-hand side, 
um, it is actually a shocking result. We know that only a small percentage of the population have private medical aids and can afford private treatment. I think it's unreasonable to think that only 34 MOPs should service a population of about 15 million. Further on, if we add the assistance and OFTs, which is the green ones, it really does not paint a nice picture at this stage. So the status of public versus private practice looks like this. A lot more MOPs in private sector. The reason being no posts available in government and therefore qualifieds have to go privately to survive. When we benchmark against um, international standards, um, the World Health Organization and the International Society of Prosthetic and Orthotics suggest that we have five to ten um, MOPs per one million population and twice at as much assistance and OFTs. And we don't have this in our country in South Africa. Um, you will see this in the next slide. So the ideal situation, and uh, you, uh, only it's, it's per province, but you only have to look at the totals at, in this stage. The ideal situation, according now to the international standards, um, say that we should have 584 MOPs with a 58 million population, which we have. Actually, we have more than this. But because the stats for the assistance, which is the lower table, is so skewed as we actually need 1,169 assistants um, and OFTs and only have 120 of them, the MOPs have to be more at this stage um, to be able to do the work. So that um, is a skewed uh, view of, of, of the profession at this stage. Um, at this stage. Um, thank you, Heather. So are all of us on the same page is the question. I think we will need a few discussions between universities, Department of Education and the HBCSA and Department of Health and the associations involved to come up with a suitable solution. As the World Health Organization, I also do think um, that the benefits of orthotics and prosthetic services are not understood correctly and the recognition of our profession is really not where it's supposed to be. These quotes that comes from the World Health Organization and ISBO um, is just supporting my view. So lastly, let's, let's summarize in my next slide. So we need more assistance and OFTs in our profession. To have that, we need more posts created for them. The Department of Health should consider in-service training as an option to accommodate the growth of assistance and OFTs. Number two, we will have to have a look at the training needs with the various stakeholders and look at the level of qualification within our profession. We don't currently offer MOP master's degrees, meaning that research is not what it is supposed to be. Currently, our bursary students um, they have bursaries, but none of them are linked to posts, meaning that they don't even work back the bursaries as there are no, no posts linked to those um, bursaries. And then lastly, from an education point of view, we feel that the community service here would have helped us immensely, and especially the public service, to keep qualified into public sector for another year um, to help lift the burden of the workload um, in government. And Jan Hendrik will now discuss in his slides the public health services. I thank you for the opportunity.
Thank you, thank you for that valuable information. Good morning, everybody. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Janine Rukswichers. I'm a medical chief medical officer, prothetist, the Western Cape Department of Health, and also the national chair for Rehab Forum South Africa. My presentation to give you some overview of the orthotics and prosthetic challenges and background currently in the Department of Health, current National Department of Health Orthotic and Prosthetic Centers, shortage of medical orthotists and prosthetists in South Africa, assistive devices challenges, proposed way forward, and also Western Cape Orthotics and Prosthetic Center, as an example, is used for some insight to a general orthotics and prosthetic center's operation. In the first graph you'll see currently in South Africa, we've got 34 MOPs in Gauteng, 43 in KwaZulu-Natal, 14 in the Western Cape, 34 in the Eastern Cape, 4 in Limpopo, 11 in Pumbalanga, 2 in Northwest, 10 in the Free State, and 2 in the Northern Cape. The graph next to that, you'll see how the landscape changes as you see the responsibilities of these MOPs. If you consider their outreach clinics, outreach Clinics is highlighted in orange, 20 in Gauteng for 34 MOPs. KwaZulu Natal is servicing 384 outreach clinics with only 43 MOPs. Western Cape, 92 with 14 MOPs. Eastern Cape, 18 outreach clinics with 34 MOPs. Mpumalanga, 21 with 11 MOPs. Northwest, nine outreach clinics, two MOPs. Free, free State, 10 outreach clinics, 11 outreach clinics, 10 MOPs, Northern Cape, 48 outreach clinics with only two MOPs. Also, considering this is over and above with the medical officers, prophetess, daily ward patients, um, metro clinics, and the patients seen at the facilities itself. This graph will give you an indication of allocated budgets per province and also the population per province. In the Gauteng, you've got a population of 15 million, budget of 10 million. KwaZulu-Natal, population of 11 million, budget of 70 million. Western Cape, population of 7 million, budget of 25 million. Eastern Cape, budget population of 7 million, budget of 33 million. Limpopo, population of 7 million, budget of seven, seven, uh, 6 million. Mpumalanga, population of six, 5 million, uh, budget of 4 million. Northwest, population of 4 million, budget of 2 million. And the free state population of 3 million with a budget of 23 million. Uh, just a correction there. I'm sorry, Heather, if you can go, just go back. Correction. Limpopo's got a population of 6 million and the budget is only 600,000. Thank you, Heather. Considering the budget, the backlogs and the population, currently the backlogs experiencing the orthotics and prosthetics is 10,424. The province not mentioned currently, not, not experiencing backlogs, and also considering these backlogs 
annually just increases. Access to assistive devices and the challenges. South Africa with a population of 60 million versus 154 MOPs currently in public service. Skewed proportions of medical officers profitors in the private sector, 549 versus only 154 in the public sector. This includes urban and rural areas. Medical officers profitors traveling up to 500 kilometers to service these outreach clinics. Lack of access to rural patients to these outreach clinics. Inadequate orthotic and prosthetic facilities, consultation rooms, machinery, equipment in the rural and metro areas, lack of referral pathways to orthotic and prosthetic services, need for national document on the prescribed minimum benefits for assistive devices, lack of national tenders for orthotic and prosthetic prescribed minimum standards, Here, a proposed way forward, an urgent staffing action plan, implementation of medical officers, profiters, community service to alleviate these pressures, increased accessibility for national need for more authentic and prosthetic centers, upgrade the current facilities, outdated machinery, technology, and assistive devices, implement of, of ideal hospital facility framework for orthotics and prosthetics. A proposed way forward that continues. SEM needs to be centralized in each facility, no longer tied to the hospital to which the facility is attached. Budgets must be visualized per facility, again, separate from the hospital to which the facility is attached. 85% of consumable stock should always be available. Implementation of the World Health Organization in, and the International Society for Prosthetics and Orthotics Action Plan on Orthotics and Prosthetic Services and Staffing. Lean Management Implementation. Universities, DUT, TUT, and WSU to assist with above-mentioned feasible studies to research and make recommendations. The Western Cape Orthotics and Prosthetics Center is used as an example for some insight to a general orthotics and prosthetics operations. The Orthotic and Prosthetics Center in the Western Cape is the only center of its kind providing orthotic and prosthetic services to government patients. What we see, Orthotic and Prosthetics Center, is governed by the Western Cape Rehabilitation Center geographically at two separate locations. At the center, you will find 14 medical officers, medical officers, prothetists, which service a population of 7 million. They're responsible for 92 annual outreach clinics, 18 special needs school clinics, six metro weekly clinics. This is without the daily clinics and the daily clinics at the facility and the outpatient scene at the facility. That is done with a budget of 25 million. With a population close to 6.7 million in the Western Cape, we would have 34,000 people with disabilities in the need of medical, of medical, orthotic, and prosthetic services. 
estimated from the World Health Organization report on disability equals 0.5% of a population. Proposed WHO personnel estimate to provide MOP services for 6.7 million people equals 190 staff. Currently at the OPC, there is only 18 staff. WHO proposed estimate for Estimate of qualified medical authorities prothetist requiring to fulfill the Western Cape's need in the orthotics and prosthetics equals 40. The current staff is only 40. In the Western Cape, only 46% of orthotic and prosthetics patients are treated at the center with sufficient machinery and equipment. With 27 of, 27% of patients are seen at orthotic and prosthetics clinics, which don't have sufficient machinery and equipment. 22% of children from other special needs schools or pediatric hospitals. Rural district outreach clinics, 25%. Patients seen at the center, 34%. Special needs schools, 12%. Why the special needs schools is important, I'll come back to my, li my last slide. Next percentage is metro hospitals in the Cape Town area. Total of 3,327 3, patients seen annually. Western Cape, considering 29% of orthotics and prosthetic patients treated do not have a disability, explain the vast scope of field of orthotics and prosthetics, especially in the orthotics field itself. Osteoarthritis and knee conditions, 531% patients seen annually, 21% of total patients annual. Congenital, 43%. Feed deformities, 10%. Stroke, 9%. Post-polio, 6%. Amputations, 3%. Western Cape Orthotics and Prosthetics Center stats for making prosthesis, trauma, 103, vascular related, 176, cancer, 9, congen congenital, 30, a total of 318 prosthesis manufactured annually for public service, Western Cape Orthotics and Prosthetics Center. Lastly, I leave you with this thought and just a reminder. Children in South Africa with disabilities have the right to access to healthcare services, equal education, be developed to their full potential, freedom from discrimination, protected against violence, abuse, and neglect. Thank you very much. Now I'm handing over to Bradley from SOPA. Are your presentation speaking to what we asked you to come and make a presentation on? Um, Chair, if I may come in there. Um, apologies, Chair. This is Bradley Beckley, Chair of the South African Orthotic and Prosthetic Association. My presentation will tie it all together. So we're just trying to give you a bit of background with regards to our association, our profession, and the current challenges. Um, my presentation will bring it more in line with the NHI and our submission. So... In that regard, thank you, Jan Hendrik. Um, before I continue, I'd like to mention that the contents of a few of my slides have been changed. 
Um, these variances will therefore be noted from the copy submitted to the Commission yesterday. Um, a revised copy of this will be forwarded soonest. And in the interest of bandwidth, um, I'm going to be turning off my video for the duration of this presentation, if that's all right. So as initially stated, today's presentation uh, was specifically designed to highlight the three main pillars of our profession, namely education, public, and the private sector. Under NHI, these three sectors need to work coherently to provide optimal orthotic and prosthetic care. Unfortunately, as demonstrated, we as a profession currently find ourselves in a predicament where the balance between the private sector and government is severely influenced by the constraints placed by frozen posts in government and insufficient operating budgets. These frozen posts have conversely affected the private sector as newly qualified practitioners not having posts available to them are forced to open a practice out of sheer desperation. So OP is aware of many instances where due to the extreme expenses of setting up an orthotic and prosthetic practice, private practices are being established without adhering to the basic HPCSA legislative requirements. These practices then consult patients in inadequate facilities with poorly equipped laboratories, resulting in inferior products and poor clinical outcomes. Startup capital to any new practitioner is rarely available as banking institutions require historical and profitable financials. Unfortunately, this situation will be exacerbated should our training centers qualify orthotists and prosthetists at a rate far greater than available positions. The private sector is currently saturated with practitioners and the state is severely understaffed. The balance between education, state and private can only be attained once existing government posts are reinstated and new posts created to meet the required demand. The current shortfalls and requirements have been demonstrated by my colleagues in the previous presentations. So now that the demand for our services have been determined, the facilities to provide these services are available, and the education platform to provide the required skills have been established, our remaining challenges are the budgetary constraints. So the concern from the private sector in this regard is how the NHI will be comprehensively funded, since the current demands within the public sector can't be met. To maintain and sustain affordable healthcare, adequate funding for the national health insurance should be clarified. As stipulated, clause 48 and 49 should be governed by money bill as it, is proposed, as it proposes raising taxes. So without an accompanying money bill, it is difficult to determine how resources will be sourced and the impact thereof on remuneration of OMPs and the coverage of OMP services in the public sector. Further, it is the function of the National Department of Health and statutory professional councils to determine how entities are to be organized. For example, the move of hospital management from provincial to national level and the Health Professionals Act on multidisciplinary practices, not that of the NHI is noted in the bill. So the bill aims to split the purchaser or the NHI fund and the provider functions of healthcare, thus venturing beyond its jurisdiction into the provision side of healthcare. This brings me to the point of the current reimbursement of private practitioners in South Africa. The private orthotic and prosthetic field is diverse and rather complex in its composition. With over 300 professional fee codes, we have 102 material kits and more than 36,000 individual products and components. So these codes allow for various combinations as per individual patient requirement, leading to exponential billing, billing possibilities. Orthotics and prosthetics currently are not part of the National Health Reference Price List, 
And this has meant that the private practitioners were necessitated in conjunction with the Competitions Commission approved third party institution to create the Olnitz and Littich Guide to Billing Structures and Guidelines. This guide was published and distributed until 2017, and each individual practice became responsible for their own tariffs, based on the building blocks from past ANL publications. The current private ONP practitioners bill for their professional fees based on the ANL guide, and componentry is billed with their respective NAPI codes as published by MediCredit. Should NHI be implemented, we would like to have more clarity as to how reimbursement would occur, since there's no current national reference model. Further clarity with regards to the reimbursement would be required for the following. NHI has stated that they are not a medical aid. It will assume the role of a medical insurer to cover medical expenses incurred by all healthcare stakeholders within the medical field. However, it is common knowledge that in contradiction, the South African government stated that they intend to procure medicines and medical devices directly for the NHI. This aspect is not the function of an insurance management operation, and to avoid confusion, details of the structure need to be provided. The bill is also contradictory as to whether it will set prices as, to, as per clause 10G and 39.8G, or negotiate prices as per clause 11.2E. So OPA members, as well as other private practitioners, may not be involved in setting or recommending any prices but we would support a negotiation system as set out by the Health Market Inquiry final report of 2019. To this, port, this point, different products and subsequently different suppliers are used by ONPs, each according to their speciality or field of interest. We would like to know whether the NHI would allow and cater for this aspect, or would we be limited to a few suppliers with a limited product range? Price determination systems often result in the system becoming too rigid and not being able to cater for the individual needs of the patient, hence limiting best practice outcomes. So OPA recommends negotiated prices to include such variations required within our profession. This will ensure the best possible clinical outcomes and patient care. The Office of Health Products Procurement, or the OHPP, is an entity newly introduced in the 29 version, 2019 version of the Health Insurance Bill. It is unclear what the rationale or function of the OHPP will be. We have, however, made a few deductions based on reference to the bill. Uh, we would, however, appreciate clarity in this regard. So our understanding is that the NHI fund will actively purchase health goods and health-related products from NHI healthcare service providers. These are medical establishments and wholesalers that are SARPRA certified and accredited in accordance with the provisions of the National Health Insurance Act, the National Health Act, and the Public Finance Management Act. According to Section 101 b of the bill, the OHPP will be housed within the NHI fund to purchase health-related products such as orthotic and prosthetic devices. Our profession deals with Class A medical devices, many of which are imported and not currently required to be registered in SARPA. Would this mean that all our devices that are to be distributed through the OHPP would then require SARPA registration? If so, our concern is that SARPA declared a backlog of 16,000 applications, 8,000 new applications, and just under 8,000 applications for variations. With the current SARPA structure, we envisage lengthy delays, and this excludes the multiple, multitude of possible new applications. 
Sarpra's website has a newsletter stating that new systems are being implemented to reduce the waiting periods. We as an association are, however, still concerned. The NHI bill defines health goods or related products as any commodity other than orthodox medicine, medical devices, or scheduled substances, which is produced for preventative, curative, therapy, diagnostic purposes for human health. The definition is confusing as it excludes medical devices that fall under the health goods. The fund is still responsible for purchasing health goods, but medical devices are meant to be procured by the OHPP. Health goods are defined broadly to include medical equipment, medical devices, and supplies for the promotion, preservation, diagnosis, or improvement of the health status of a human being. Unfortunately, as the above shows, the parameters within which the OHPP will operate are uncertain, and more details are required as to where medical devices will find their place within the bill and its operational structures. Further understanding is that the OHPP will coordinate, coordinate the supply chain management process and negotiate prices with OMP suppliers. The objective is to facilitate cost-effective, equitable procurement of health-related products via ordering and distribution contracts of health products nationally. The question is, will the OHPP then negotiate the procurement of prosthetic devices, or will they make decisions on prosthetic orthotic componentry on behalf of private service providers for the NHI use? Should the NHI procure componentry on the patient's behalf, would it abide to the national and international prescribed patient activity classifications, or will a high-activity patient be limited to componentry based on value? According to the bill, accredited healthcare service providers and health establishments must procure medical devices according to the NHI specification, and suppliers listed must deliver directly to the accredited and contracted healthcare service providers and health establishments. However, the Department of Health already stated that both contracted public and private facilities have access to the products purchased through the OHPP. All health establishments may order directly from and pay the supplier. So should the NHI remain a medical insurance provider as envisaged, direct purchases would not be a concern. And the MOPs will source products for NHI patients through the current industry wholesalers. An amicable, timeless reimbursement model would however need to be implemented to ensure sustainability of the suggested model. Component limitations as well as monopolization of supply would then be limited. So the above summarizes our concerns with regards to the NHI componentry supply chain. The secondary concern being the professional fee structure. So as highlighted on the opening slides, orthotics and prosthetics is not merely the supply of a, of a pre-manufactured component or device. Each 